Well, today uh, we're starting a new series. We're going to uh, journey through the book of 1 Samuel. And for the next couple of months, look at the first 15 chapters. And then in the month of August, we're going to look at chapters 16 and 17. And uh, then we'll, we'll see if we finish it in the fall. Uh, it's kind of like going to the movies, you know, trying it out, seeing if we like this thing, like Batman versus Superman, that was okay. But next time, can we go see Captain America Civil War. So we're going to journey through 1 Samuel. And so I want to give a little backstory of what leads up to where we are in 1 Samuel. Uh, so a number of months ago, we uh, went through the book of Ruth, which I really enjoyed. It was a lot of fun to explore Ruth with you all. This uh, book, 1 Samuel, comes right after Ruth. So it's during the same time period. Um, it's uh, right after the book of Judges. And so this is during a time period in, in the Hebrew people's history where they're kind of a, a loose uh, group of tribes. Uh, they don't have uh, a king, and they, they're just kind of existing as this loose group of tribes, and they got all kinds of internal problems, and they got all kinds of external problems. Uh, some of the internal problems revolve around who we will get to know a little bit, the house of Eli and the priestly house, uh, what's going on in Shiloh where the tabernacle was. So years later, when the temple is built, it's built in Jerusalem. Uh, before that, they had a big tent that they worshipped God in, and uh, this tent was called the tabernacle, and it was in the town of Shiloh. And this is where Eli was priest, and his sons Hophni and Phinehas were priests. And uh, we're going to learn that Eli's sons aren't so great. Uh, and what we learn through, one of the subtexts of the entire biblical narrative is that we see that God is not pleased with people who abuse power. And so when power is abused, God is not happy. And this is whether it's political power, whether it's national power, whether it's corporate power, or whether it's religious power, God is not pleased. And we see in Eli's house that religious power is being abused because God always gives power to be used for those on the underside of power. And we see Hophni and Phinehas abusing the power that they've been entrusted with. Some of the external problems that the Hebrew people were dealing with were uh, warfare. Mainly their... their uh, main military opponent were the Philistines. And the Philistines had a king, and other nations around them had a king, but Israel didn't have a king. And so what we're going to see in a couple, two, three weeks, is that Israel wants a king. They want to be like everyone else. They want a king. They want a human king. God has told them, I am your king. But something within them sees what their neighbors have. And they want what their neighbors have. Now, this is thousands of years ago. Stuff like this doesn't happen today. Uh, but back then, uh, in this tribal consciousness, if you will, the, uh, people, they wanted what their neighbors had. I know it's hard for us to grasp this. Um, and, and so they want a king. Uh, they feel like if they can get the right person in a position of power, all their problems will be resolved. 
again, nothing like today at all. Uh, but they, they, they want this person, a human being, to be put in a position of power over them so that their problems will be taken care of. They want a king like everyone else has a king. So this story, the book of Samuel, we, we uh, encounter some, some huge figures in Israelite history, names like Samuel, Saul, and who we'll get to eventually, David. Interestingly, the book of 1 Samuel does not begin with these huge figures. It begins with a woman named Hannah. And the, this story that we're going to explore this morning is about this woman named Hannah who longs to have a child. She's barren. And she longs to have a child. And in many ways, her longing for a child is a picture of Israel's longing for a king. And so I want to pick up right at the beginning of 1 Samuel, chapter 1, verse 1. It says, There was a certain man from Ramathan, a Zuphite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jerohom, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. So there's some fun names for you. <laughs> he had two wives. So already we're, we're seeing that there's going to be a problem in this family, right? I mean, just the history of polygamy says this does not work, and it does not work well. Uh, but in this time period in the ancient Near East, uh, polygamy was still very normal. And so here's a man who had two wives. One was called Hannah, and the other, Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Uh, there's some uh, Jewish history that goes along with the book of 1 Samuel, and uh, some, uh, some of the Jewish commentary around this, they, they kind of uh, fill in the gaps, if you will. And some of them say that what's going on here, uh, because in the East, in, in this time period, uh, and we learned this as we went through the book of Ruth, uh, that unfortunately your worth as a woman was only defined by having men in your life. And so uh, whether it's your father, your husband, or sons, uh, your capacity to survive in the ancient Near East had to do with having a living father or a living husband, or a living son. And so for Hannah, she has a husband, but she has no sons. So her, her future in this culture is potentially put in jeopardy. And so some of the Jewish stories around this say that because having an heir was so important in this culture, that uh, uh, Elkanah had married Hannah, but she didn't have any children. So after a few years, he married Penina, and she did have children. And so let's continue the story here. Year after year, this man went up from his hometown to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions 
of the meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Now, a lot going on here. Elkanah uh, would give meat portions to his two wives and to his children to offer as sacrifice. But interestingly, he gives a double portion to Hannah. So it, it seems, if these Jewish traditions are true, that he married Hannah first, and then later married Penina, it seems that uh, his first marriage, there is love involved. This just wasn't a utilitarian relationship. He, he loved Hannah, but his desire for an heir caused him to marry a second wife who had children. But this relationship with Penina seems more utilitarian. Okay, she's giving me what I want, children, heirs. Uh, but out of his love, he gives a double portion to Hannah. Now, uh, this is like a great example of good intentions gone awry. Because what does this do within Penina when she sees that her husband loves Hannah, but the same love is not given to her. It's very easy to read this story and pick a good guy and a bad guy. It's very easy to read this story and say, we're on the side of Hannah, not on the side of Penina, because she's, well, she's just mean. She's vindictive, and she lets Hannah have it. Remember last week when we talked about broken desires and underneath every broken desire, if we get deep enough, we'll find God. I think this story in many ways is a story about broken desires. Elkanah's desire to make Hannah happy uh, is a good desire that's gone awry. Uh, Hannah's desire to have children is a good desire, and, and we'll have to explore. Is this a good desire that has gone awry? Has she begun to long for children more than she longs for God? I'm not sure. We'll explore that a little more. Penina, her desire is to be loved and to be wanted. And this desire has been broken within her. And because of it, she becomes angry and mean towards Hannah, who she sees as loved and wanted. It's, it's very easy to read a story like this and judge Penina and to look at her and see everything that's wrong with her rather than to look underneath all of that and say, where, where is the seed of goodness? in her? Uh, where is the capacity for goodness in her, and where has that gone awry? 
Because certainly her actions and her words and what she does to Hannah, none of that is justified. It's deeply broken. And yet within that is a deeply broken woman who feels rejected, unwanted, and unloved. I think we go through life so often not fully seen. We, we think we see people clearly when we don't even see ourselves clearly. It's like driving over the Golden Gate Bridge for the first time in heavy fog and you can't see the city. You have no idea what's there. This is how we go through most of life. Deeply blinded to what's really going on inside ourselves and what's going on within others. It's easy to look at someone else and to make judgments. It's easy to see something that someone else is doing or saying and make judgments about that. The more difficult task is to look at that person and say, what might be causing them to act like that? To to put yourself in their shoes for a moment and ask the question, why might they be acting out in that way? Why might they have said that? Why might they have done that? doesn't make the action or the words right. It simply puts you in their shoes for a moment to identify with them and where they are. And so Penina uh, says some deeply hurtful things to Hannah, so deeply hurtful that she is in tears and she cannot eat. This is a deeply depressed woman if she cannot eat. She is filled with sadness, tears, and heartache. And so along comes Elkanah and uh, just has some brilliant words. Brilliant words. Uh, He says, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Her answer to that is going to be no. Uh, this is uh, <laughs> this is just just goes down in the annals of uh, the wrong thing to say at the wrong time. Uh, don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Notice what he doesn't say. You mean more to me than ten sons. He doesn't say that. He says, don't I mean more to you than ten sons? No, you don't. Verse 9. Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. And so through, through the story, we're going to see the, uh, the narrator here is telling us over and over again how much deep pain Hannah is in and how deeply she longs to have a child. And here she is pouring her heart out in deep anguish 
and bitterness to God, pleading with him, so much so that she makes a vow. And her vow is, if you will give me a son, I will give him back to you, and a razor will never touch his head. Now, what she's referring to here about a razor never touching his head is uh, what was called a Nazarite vow. And uh, the Hebrew people uh, had this thing called a Nazarite vow, and often it was taken for a period of time. So uh, whether a period of months or a period of years where they would not uh, cut their hair or shave their beard or uh, consume any fermented drink. Um, here, uh, some people took this vow for life. And here Hannah is saying, if you give me a son, my son will be a Nazarite for life. And I will give him back to you. As she kept on praying, verse 12, to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk. <laughs> yeah, that is funny. And said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Um, so again, th this is so interesting to me. This just highlights, I think, how easily we as humans make judgments on other people without knowing the whole story. We, we are so quick to identify what's wrong with someone else without knowing the whole story. What would it be like if we as people, actually, if, we, if, we, if a judgment came in our mind, if we caught that for a moment and said, let me try to get underneath that. Let me try to explore, number one, why I'm thinking that, and number two, what might be going on in their life. This is Eli. He's the high priest, and he's just automatically it's like, she's drunk. I don't know. Eli's sitting by the doorpost. He might be himself. And so, isn't this true of us? Often what we see in ourselves, we place on other people. I don't know. I'm probably just making that up, but it's worth thinking about. And so he just automatically thinks she's drunk because she's moving her mouth and he doesn't hear anything. This is a woman who is in deep prayer, in deep anguish, in deep heartache, pouring herself out before God. And the thought from Eli is, man, she's, she's got to be drunk. And so he tells her to stop drinking. She says, verse 15, Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. And so throughout these first 16 verses of this story, we, we hear about anguish, we hear about grief, we hear about heartache, we hear about pouring out her soul, we hear about tears, we hear about bitterness. Uh, the storyteller here is making very clear to us how unbelievably difficult this is for Hannah. She is in deep distress. She wants to have a son. 
and she cannot bear children. So, as I mentioned last week, we talked about broken desires and the good desire at the root of that. This week, I want to flip it around a little bit and talk about good desires. And so, the broken desires, if we get deep enough down, we discover God. And that God is the giver of all desires. And all too often, we live out of broken desires rather than those good desires that God has given us. Now, there are good desires that God gives us. But these good desires can also go awry and become broken. And so, our longing for relationship, if it becomes about the relationship rather than the one who gave us the desire for relationship, it becomes broken. Our longing and desire for beauty through the natural world or books or music or going for a hike, you name it, that these good, deep longings for beauty come from Him who is beautiful, the Creator of all those good things, gives us those desires. But when we begin to look to those things as the things we want, rather than God who gives us the desire for those things, it becomes broken. I think C.S. Lewis puts it really, really well. He says, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them, it only came through them, and what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. And so C.S. Lewis is helping us understand that all these desires for beauty, all these desires for good things, if they become about that thing itself, we've lost our way. It's only the scent of a flower. It's only the thought of a country we have not yet visited. The beauty itself, the desire itself, is rooted and grounded in the Creator God of the universe. It seems to me as I read this story that Hannah's good desire for a child uh, is potentially dangerously in a spot of becoming about that rather than God who gives her the desire. Let's see where it moves from here with Hannah. She says, uh, again, verse 16, I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Something has happened. Something has significantly shifted in Hannah in this moment. Uh, 
I don't know how exactly, other than she poured her heart out to God. And in her pouring out her heart, in her pouring out her soul, she believes and trusts that she's been heard. Uh, when it says her face was no longer downcast and she went home and ate, uh, she is not yet pregnant. She is still without child. And yet somehow a peace and contentment has come upon her. And I think this peace and this contentment comes in different ways for different people. Uh, and, and so I don't think this is necessarily a model for if you just pour your heart out to God, then you'll walk away feeling peace and contentment. Uh, you, you might feel peace and contentment for three minutes and then go right back to the heartache. And I think that's okay. I think what Hannah teaches us in this story and what God is teaching us is that God longs to know our longings. And when we present our longings and desires to God, He can then shape those longings and desires into our truest and deepest longings for Him. In the Psalms it says, uh, God will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. How is that possible? That He'll give us all the desires of our hearts. It's because when we delight ourselves in the Lord, somehow God is invited in the process of shaping our desires and longings so that our desires and longings align with the desires and longings that God has placed within us from the beginning of time. God longs to know us. And he places within us a deep longing to know him. And this is what Hannah does. She's just honest. She's just honest with God. This is where I'm at. Heartache, anguish, distress, tears, bitterness. And God hears her. And he's present to her. And she is able to find peace and contentment and able to go home and eat. I'm going to summarize the, the last chunk of chapter 1 here. So it, this, as the story continues in time, Hannah does get pregnant, and she has a son, and she names him Samuel. And uh, she does what she promised. She presents Samuel at the tabernacle to Eli and gives Samuel to Eli to raise. Now, a couple things here. One, if someone came to me and said, I, I think you should give one of your children to someone else to raise, uh, I would have a major problem with that. Um, and it would not happen. But what this story, I think, is teaching us, and why here at Bay Marin we do this thing called child dedications, where uh, we give parents the opportunity to dedicate their children, give their children back to God, if you will, it, is it teaches us that these good desires, these good longings that God gives us deep within our hearts and souls, that when we find some of these things fulfilled, when the good gifts are given, they're never 
really, truly only ours. They belong to God. And what does it look like to give those things back to God? That the good gifts in our lives, we, we, uh, we like to hold tight to what's ours. Uh, we, we don't like to share the things that are ours. And yet, this story teaches us that they're not actually ours. They belong to God. And Hannah teaches us how to give it back, how to release it and recognize nothing really is ours. Nothing is within our control. We have to trust that everything we have is actually in God's hands. And so the good desires, the good gifts that are yours, what does it look like to give them back? Whether it's a relationship, a spouse, a child, a parent, a job, money. What does it look like to hold all these things loosely and say, God, they are not mine. They are yours. I give them back to you. I entrust them to you. And I ask for your wisdom in how to handle these good gifts that you've placed in my life that I ultimately have no control over and release them to God. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I was, uh, as I was studying this, I was putting myself in Eli's shoes for a moment. And uh, the text says she um, brought Samuel and presented him at the tabernacle uh, when he was weaned. And in this culture, he was probably around three years old. So a three-year-old little boy. And here you go, Eli. So now Samuel is being raised in the temple, uh, in the tabernacle with Eli in Eli's family, which is also deeply broken, just like Elkanah's family was deeply broken. And so next week we'll explore how this boy Samuel engages and, and experiences God in the midst of something that's deeply, deeply broken. This morning, as we come and partake of the bread and the cup, I want to invite you to consider what it looks like to give everything you have to God, to entrust it to God in the way that Jesus gave everything he had in coming and being in our midst. That that Jesus who experienced all the glory of heaven chose to come and live among us, and give everything he had, ultimately his life on the cross. Jesus comes and teaches us how to die. Jesus comes and teaches us how to hold everything loosely. Jesus comes and teaches us that everything we have is not really ours. Jesus comes and gives his own life on the cross so that we might experience abundant life. Jesus On the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Take it and eat in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, 
said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Take it and drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. God, thank you for this beautiful story of Hannah. Her life. God, thank you for her honesty, for her anguish, for her tears, for her heartache. God, I pray that you would hear the cry of our hearts. God, be near to the brokenhearted. We ask that you would bring hope and you would bring healing in the midst of pain and heartache. And ultimately, God, that we would trust you with our lives, that we would come to you with open hands and say, all that I am and all that I have is yours. And that we would be moved by your spirit to live the way of Jesus. The way of self-giving love, the way of self-denial, the way of giving ourselves for your sake, for the sake of others, for the sake of the world. In the name of Jesus, amen. So as you go, may you know that love, the love of God that fills you to overflowing by his spirit. And may you know that God longs for you to long for him. May God fulfill your deepest longings. And in those longings, in those desires, may they always arise.